What part should we play in terror, torture, oppression, asking for a friend? And all Americans are my friends, right? This Week in Common Sense for the last week of November 2019. Here's Paul Jacob. This week was a little bit of a light week because uh, Thanksgiving and Thanksgiving, what a nice holiday. You know, so unpretentious, you know, people get together, it's one day, it's not a whole season. You know, I've always liked Thanksgiving. You know, uh, lower expectation, higher performance, it seems like to me. And uh, we were able to uh, build on an old common sense that that, uh, I had done years ago uh, about this whole idea that, that, uh, you know, the president comes out and pardons these turkeys. We're not going to kill them and eat them. But then, of course, you know, I don't think that President Trump or Obama before him or Bush went and ate like vegetarian or, you know, shied away from turkey and ate seafood or steak or something else. So in essence, they came out for the cameras. They were magnanimous and and good-hearted and pardoned the turkeys. And then they went behind closed doors and had somebody kill some other turkeys so they could eat them. And and it just it just strikes me as a metaphor for the way Washington works, where it's always, you know, pretending beyond all pretense, and then the reality is very ugly, and the exact thing that they're promising not to do, or or claiming they would never do, is of course what they're behind closed doors doing. So it it always it's always kind of a a, a little bit of a of a funny thing, and of course, you know, Trump is is. Uh, you know, maybe with Trump, you're just not quite as sure whether the turkey's going to get pardoned. Like you could see that it, if the if they caused a bunch of trouble right before the the press conference went off, that he might say this year, forget it, forget it. I thought we had terrific turkeys; they're losers, and I'm going to have them. You know, I'm going to have them for dinner. But anyway, uh, and then of course on on Friday. The, uh, the kind of that funny day in there that you can't get any work done, but it's not really a holiday, you know, what have you, Black Friday. Uh, we, we talked about Paul Harvey and, and a great quote, the, the quote about, you know, if, if government is big enough to give you everything you want, then it's also big enough to take away everything you have. And the, the, it really points up the age old, question that, uh, you know, if, if you don't have the freedom to do it on your own, if, if uh, you know, if, if you're going to give the power to government to, to make your life wonderful, boy, there's not a lot of history where government went on a, you know, 10-year or 100-year roll of making everybody, everybody's life wonderful. And, uh, you know, so it, it's, it's, uh, a, a wonderful quote and a wonderful way to get people to focus on the problem of big government. And we had a little bit of fun because of course you can go on certain places on the internet and it's another thing that Thomas Jefferson said, and he said a lot of good things. If Thomas Jefferson and Abraham Lincoln, since the internet 
have have just quadrupled their their uh, wonderful quotations. So, uh, you know, we were able to dispel that and, and talk a little bit about Paul Harvey, which one of my thrills in life was the first year working for U.S. Terminal. It's 1992. Uh, I got a call from Paul Harvey at home. I was about to leave for work. It was a little bit before 8 a.m. And I and my phone rings, which usually doesn't ring at that time of day. And uh, all of a sudden, my wife's saying, hey, you've got uh, someone on the phone, Paul Harvey. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm upstairs finishing getting ready going, what did she just say? And, uh, and of course, you get on the phone, and there's that voice. And, it, you know, he just had such a, you know, uh, unique and, and, uh, uh, and, and funny in some ways, but perfect voice for radio. And, of course, he was a big term limit supporter. He, he was asking questions about where we stood and stuff because he was doing a report on term limits. Uh, but uh, that, was, that was kind of fun. And uh, one of the things I'm thankful for in life is, uh, is you know, those kind of little moments uh, where you meet somebody that, that, you know, you didn't expect to meet even on the phone and, and uh, always comes at strange times. I remember I, I uh, was trying to get a hold of Ralph Nader one time for a week or so, and, and uh, lo and behold, I pick up the phone on a Saturday afternoon, and uh, I hear somebody using Ralph Nader's voice say, is Paul Jacob there? And uh, then lo and behold, it was Ralph Nader using Ralph Nader's voice. So uh, the other interesting story this week, uh, which I don't know if it's lighter, but it's a little lighter. One, because Tim Eyman has a sense of humor, but Tim Eyman is running for governor in, in uh, Washington State. We featured uh, Eyman many, many times because he's done many, many initiatives. And in a blue state, uh, with a statewide initiative and referendum process, uh, he has demonstrated that, you know, you can certainly put uh, anti-tax measures, accountability measures, you know, he did some uh, a great initiative empowering the, the state auditor, that you can put those things on the ballot and win. And you can win when you're spending virtually nothing to advertise your measure and the other side is spending three and four and six million dollars against you with nasty ads. So it's, it, it just is amazing what he's been able to accomplish. And of course, he has not accomplished it running for office and seeking to hold office himself. And so some of their demonizing of him uh, has, has uh, well, not some of it, just about all of it has been worthless in terms of trying to stop initiatives because voters are very discerning. I mean, look at, look at we talked, I think, the, the other week about uh, evangelicals and Trump. And, and a lot of times you hear people on the left saying, how could evangelicals like Trump when he, you know, he curses every once in a while, he says this or that. And, you know, they compartmentalize. They, they're, look, they're not looking at, at Trump as someone who's going to be the godly president. They're looking at, at Trump as the, uh, as the, the good dumpster fire as the change agent, as someone who will shake up Washington. And even though they might not like the way he always says it or the attitude or, or his persona always, uh, they have embraced that change agent. And I think for some, you know, reasonable reasons, but it's, uh, it's, it's that sort of thing where I think there are people who might not like uh, I'm in shtick, 
there might be people who don't like his ideas who do kind of find him amusing because he's very he's very funny and he's very light sometimes and and he just knows how to he knows how to work the media and uh, so it, it'll be a very interesting race uh, and of course with Tim I mean you don't know he might two months from now say I've decided not to do that uh, but but I think he'll make that race very very interesting and I I'm also interested to see that he's not running as a Republican or a Democrat uh, which could also create uh, an interesting situation in that race um, but I think the uh, uh, the two more weighty uh, common sense this week uh, was the common sense uh, on the draft. Uh, and we've talked so much about the draft. And of course, you know, if this is the first time you've ever heard me, you're thinking the draft. <laughs> Wait a second, what year was this show done? Uh, but in essence, um, there's an awful lot of talk about the draft. Uh, and the talk's there because draft registration has to change. Um, the federal courts have already said the current registration where you only register men is just unconstitutional. It's not equal protection of laws. Women can now serve in every aspect of every role in combat, every single one. And so if you believe in the draft, then of course the fact that they can serve in every role means that they must be forced to serve in every role. And so if we bring back the draft, then just as our sons sadly would be forced without any choice to, to go to war, whether they believe it's just or not, and be forced into any combat role, so will our daughters, whether they like it or not, be forced into any combat role uh, and, and of course we've been through it. Uh, people go to thisiscommonsense.com. Uh, we have, we have a whole list of, of, of commentaries we've done on the draft of videos, uh, and have talked a lot about it in the last year or so, because there's this national commission on military, national and public service, which is trying to change its name now to the national commission on service. I say, forget it. They had to pick that at the beginning. Let's just use their long, ridiculous name. But we are hoping that this commission will go back to Congress and say, don't extend draft registration to women. It's an unnecessary program. It's unconstitutional. We don't need a draft. We don't need a draft in, in times of crisis. We don't need a draft now. Get rid of it. And one of the other things Congress asked this commission to do was to look at mandatory, compulsory, forced national service of a year or two. And uh, my youngest is 20 years old. She probably escapes anything, even if they bring it back. But the idea that you would tell a young person, and, and my daughter, I'm very proud of her. I know a lot of her friends. I'm proud of them, too. They are out there. They're working jobs. They're going to school. They're helping to pay for school. They do volunteer work sometimes. These are great kids who the last thing in the world they need is the federal government and a bunch of stupid people in Congress trying to get in the way between them and their future. Um, and it, it's funny this week, and this may be weird, but it just it occurred to me when I was thinking of this story this week, there's a, there's a, the movie Gran Torino, 
is a is a neat movie Academy Award winner. And uh, there's a Hmong uh, young man that Clint Eastwood is, you know, trying to train upright and realizes that the Hmong man, uh, young guy, 16, 17, 18, uh, the gang try to get him to steal Clint Eastwood's Gran Torino. And that's how they met. And then he started doing things for him. But anyway, at one point, Clint Eastwood says to this one gang uh, leader, he doesn't have one second for you. He says, leave him alone. He doesn't have one second for you. And that's the way I feel about my kid. And frankly, that's the way I feel about everybody else's kid and the federal government and the Congress trying to come up with some ridiculous program where they will stop the progress these kids are making. And after 12 years of compulsory education, will be told, oh no, they don't somehow have enough social co cohesion or they don't understand about the great history of this country uh, enough so we're going to force them to go sweep some street somewhere? This is, it's insanity. And it keeps being talked about uh, more and more. And, and what our particular commentary was about was the fact that the, this National Commission had written an op-ed, and of course nobody signed the op-ed, it's signed by the National Commission. Uh, and so, you know, there's kind of no accountability there, who knows who, who, who wrote it. But they put it out, it's their official word, and they talk about the show This Is Us, which I've seen a few times. My wife is a regular watcher. I'm always a little bit behind, ask a lot of stupid questions because I don't watch all the episodes. Um, and and they have this flashback to 1970 and the draft lottery. And the way the op-ed talks about it, it's as if, you know, you'll, you should watch the show because you'd understand, you know, and that, uh, about how the draft works and everything, like it was some wonderful thing. And they say that the one guy was adamant that his number was going to come up. And it seemed to me to imply that he couldn't wait for his number to come up. Well, <laughs> the reality of the show is, they're both sitting in a bar. The guy who is adamant that his number is going to come up is actually terrified that his number is going to come up. He just knows it's going to happen, and he's belting away drinks like nobody's business, and his brother is trying to comfort him and so on. Well, the numbers come up. His number comes up fifth, which means basically he's going to Vietnam, and his brother says it's going to be okay will get you to Canada. And so here is this National Commission on Military and National and Public Service that is telling us we ought to watch this show, This Is Us, and, and remember what it was like to have the draft. Remember that certain people had their lives wrecked and that it was used to do what? It was used to prolong a war that did not have popular support. And of course it was interesting because we had a bunch of comments at the website and uh, on, on all sides kind of uh, thoughtful thing, uh, comments, but a couple of them taking uh, the, basically the same position, and I'm gonna forget his first name, but uh, Mr. Ackerman, Elliot Ackerman, who had written uh, in, in uh, I think it was the Atlantic, but uh, I could be wrong about that, I, I didn't, 
think I was going to bring this up necessarily, but they had taken the same position he had that maybe a draft would put enough people in harm's way, enough powerful people, wealthy people, whatever, uh, that somehow if we had the draft, it would actually make it to where we would all say, hey, we're not fighting these wars. And so you have to think about this for a second with a clear head. We want to send a message that we're not going to fight these wars, these regime change wars, as my favorite Democrat, Tulsi Gabbard, would, would call them, and rightfully. And the way to not fight those wars is to make it to where the government can take our kids anytime they want and make them fight those wars. That's our protection from fighting those wars. And you can understand where they're coming from in terms that it probably would heighten our concern about foreign policy. But by golly, once you put that in place, and of course, uh, there are two uh, recent uh, commentaries uh, that we did, and one was uh, attendant loss of life. And because one of the comments that Elliot Ackerman had made, and his, his, his essay is very good. He's a very good writer. Uh, he's someone that I, I know his father, and I, I like kind of his general. He's a very thoughtful guy and bright. Um, but it, it's, uh, he had used that phrase, and I looked at deaths from military combat. During the period of post-World War II, when we had a draft and didn't have a declared war, we had conflicts like Korea and then Vietnam. And we had other conflicts that didn't, didn't even necessarily make the, the papers like, you know, the CIA bombing Guatemala City in what was it, 54, I think, or 56, 54, I think. Anyway, um, so uh, this, the difference is just, unbelievable and i'm gonna i'm gonna lean here because i didn't pull it up ahead of time but uh you know the the difference in life between you know the number of people who died when we had the draft between 1946 and 1973 nearly a hundred thousand american soldiers were killed overseas in combat with the draft in place and of course it doesn't even include 74 and 75 when you still had conscripted soldiers the draft had ended but we're given that's like a mulligan for that side over four decades since then fatalities from combat are under 10,000 under 10,000 less time less than 10,000 more time you know or, or in in more time it, it it's been 10,000 in four decades in less than four decades, uh, basically three decades, 100,000 killed with the draft in place. So, you know, look, this is, it doesn't mean that's always going to be the case, but the correlation is awfully damn strong. And for someone to suggest that, one, logically it makes sense to have a draft and allow the government to just take people against their will uh, that that will somehow stop the government from fighting wars just seems ridiculous. And then with this correlation, it, there's sure no evidence to suggest that. So it's, uh, and, and the reason for, to me, that it's so important um, to, to bring this out is it is up to us to control our government. 
foreign policy wise. So I think that when people say this, I think it's important that we connect with them and say, hey, let's work together to control our foreign policy. But this is not the way to do it. And I think the other reason that this is such an important uh, issue is because it strikes so at the heart of, because, you know, patriotism, a lot of people are going to say, you owe it to your country, to your society. We always appreciate, look, if, if all hell breaks loose at the supermarket, we're going to appreciate the guys who step up and, and help defend the weaker people, the children, the, you know, uh, that's always going to be appreciated and well, it should. But, uh, but the idea that we're going to give government the power to force people to fight wars they don't want to fight when it doesn't make sense militarily, but mainly doesn't make sense from a freedom standpoint, that has to be resisted. And, uh, and I think that's, that's really important. I think we're going to hear a lot more about this because you have, you have folks who want this government to do everything, to be everything, to show that we need government every second in our lives. And so on the left, which has traditionally been a little less pro-U.S. foreign policy, you're seeing a, a lot more push for national service and those type of things. Pete Buttigieg uh, becomes president. I think there's a, a huge danger that we have a forced national service program for young people. You know, the, uh, the last uh, one we should get to is uh, Beacon of Liberty. Uh, which I wrote basically to, to, you know, make the point that we, we so often, I, I'm always thinking, what can we do? You, you look at situations like Hong Kong and really the, the best news of the, as I mentioned in this commentary, the best news recently are those elections in Hong Kong. I think it's hard to even, even conceptualize how big a victory these elections were for pro-democracy pro forces. Um, you had no pro-democracy parties controlling any of the 18 local councils. They controlled none of them. After the election, they had won 90% of the races and controlled 17 of 18 of the local councils. It was a huge turnout. Uh, so it wasn't like, oh, well, some people stayed home and it was just an aberration. No, this was a, a, just a hell of a statement and one that, that just cannot be ignored. And you also had, you had 25 year olds who'd never run for office beating three term, you know, vice, I think the vice chairman of one of the, the more pro Beijing parties was beaten by a, a 21 year old or 25 year old or something. So this was a tremendous thing that happened. We've talked a lot about Hong Kong. We talked about Taiwan, we talked about Catalonia, different places around the world. What can the U S do? And I'm glad that Trump signed that bill. I think that, I don't think we're doing anything we shouldn't be doing. We're not, we're not, you know, forcing anyone to do anything, but we're going to look at Hong Kong status and they may not get the same status if China decides to overrule the, the, the level of freedom that they have today. Um, and so I think that's a great thing, but we're always looking for these things, but it's it just like it is with maybe medicine 
do no harm. The first thing we have to do if we want to see freedom advance in the world is stop fighting it. Stop screwing it up. Stop funding the, the people who put other innocent people in prison cells or kill them. And, and the one that screams out to me is in Iraq, where protests started at the beginning of October. Over 350 Iraqis have been killed. They've used live ammunition against them. In other words, they've just shot them down in the street. And of course, I don't know everything they have. Maybe the guy they shot down was throwing a Molotov cocktail. Uh, maybe they were doing terrible things. But here's what we do know. We know that, uh, and, and over 15,000 people injured. We know that those governments, that that, that government there is not providing opportunity, is not providing rights. We didn't say to them when, when the U.S. Marines marched into Baghdad, we didn't say, hey, we've got this great constitution. You ought to look at that. That might be where you want to start. No, we, the State Department drew up some ridiculous long document that we talked about in common sense. I didn't know I'd mention this or I would have pulled it up, but, but we, we talked about it at the time, that why not suggest the Constitution? It's been pretty good for us. And, and so we have taken over this country, in, in essence. We occupy it. I'm not saying that we control everything the government does. Thank goodness we don't control everything they do. But we are their protector. And we are now protecting in Iraq a government that has murdered 350 people who, are, who have been protesting, where 15,000 people are being, have been injured. And they're using live ammunition. So it's not, it's not like, oh, well, you know, it, it, some accident happened. You've got soldiers firing rifles with bullets. Uh, not good. Not good. And, and it seems to me that the U.S. has some responsibility for this, and that at least there should be some questions asked of Trump and the State Department. Hey, wait a second. Isn't this, in essence, our government that's killing these protesters? And, of course, it's, it's not just there. Egypt. Egypt, they just had another raid on another, you know, one of their last remaining, you know, non-government controlled media operations. Uh, the Sisi government, great name for them, um, but uh, their military leader, who now is their dictator, you know, if you run against him as a, as a candidate for president, you almost always find yourself under arrest. Uh, they throw bloggers and journalists in prison. Uh, they were raided by uh, the Committee for, uh, uh, to Protect Journalists, the worst country in the world for throwing journalists into prison. And they're funded by the U.S. taxpayer. We're giving them one and a half billion dollars a year, and we've been doing it year after year after year. And we we try to play games every once in a while about oh, we're going to hold that up and and really hold them to account. And I'll read some stupid editorial in the Washington Post, some self righteous. It's right for President so and so to get tough with the Egyptians, they must do better and so on. And you know that at the end of the day, they're getting all the money. They're not going to do any better. They know they don't have to do any better. And, and by golly, we need a president who would just say, no, you're, you're finished. I'm not sending you any money. You hold a free election and, and write me and let me know how it went. Um, that's the sort of, of difference that, that, you know, we need to start making in the world and not, 
funding and facilitating uh, the type of, of, of uh, you know, bad behavior that these governments do again and again. It's, it's uh, you know, I, I talked about it. I don't know if we wrote anything about it here at, at Common Sense, but, but uh, when Khashoggi, uh, the, the Washington Post journalist, and if I butchered his name, I'm sorry, uh, but I didn't use a, a bone screw saw or bone saw to do it. This is the guy, the journalist for the Washington Post, that the Saudi government in Turkey at their embassy chopped up in little pieces using a bone saw. And then our president, Mr. Trump, kind of came out and said, hey, we do hundreds of millions, billions of dollars with the Saudis. Come on, what can we do? And it was disgusting. And yet, it occurred to me, and this is not a good thing to say about Donald Trump, it occurred to me that the difference between what Trump had done and what every other president during my lifetime either did or would have done in the same situation is that every other president would have come out and issued some tough statement and the press would have done all the things I was talking about. The Washington Post would have written an editorial in the New York Times and this cannot stand and we, that's why you're not getting the weapons and we're not doing this and we're not doing that. And as soon as everything cooled down, all the money, all the weapons would have flow, started flowing to the Saudis once again. And that, and, and sometimes you mention that and people are, well, are you defending Donald Trump? No, but I am indicting the whole shebang because the biggest fear, if, if, if you care about, you know, government under citizen control, if you care about us not behaving badly around the world, you have to realize that the problems we have, the very serious problems, did not begin when Donald Trump was elected president. Our foreign policy of regime change, we have not done any regime change wars since Trump has been president. Maybe he's too tied up with other things, and maybe that's not so bad. Uh, but we did with, with Obama, the peace candidate. We didn't get our troops out of Iraq. We didn't get our troops out of Afghanistan, but we did manage to regime change Libya. So that could be a complete crisis and chaotic situation that continues to pay bad dividends to the whole world. Um, and Bush going into Iraq, which is arguably in, in, the, in the whole history of mankind, maybe the dumbest, you know, when, when a powerful country invades a little country that, that can't really hurt it, it's hard for good things to happen. I, you just, I, I don't know why more people didn't know going in, but it just always seemed like the dumbest thing that you could possibly do. You know, I, I, I at the time I thought it was, it'd be like me challenging, you know, uh, Mike Tyson to a boxing match. The stupidest thing he could do would be to accept it. Because if I last 20 seconds, it's like I can hold up my hands. I'm the, the near world champion. And if, you know the truth is, I see it some way, some in some ways the same way with ISIS. That the first thing ISIS did is to say, "Come on, we're ready to fight you, United States." Why would we engage them in that way 
like that they're not here they don't have anything they can do with us why wouldn't we have said you're the you're not even the b team you're the the like you know the w or x or y or z team and and let the let the Sunni states around there, let Turkey do something, let others do something or not. And then you've got that Sunni state there. That's a, that's a, you know, a, a pariah. Uh, but eventually that will get taken care of. It doesn't always have to be taken care of by us. And when you, when you rush to do battle with people who are always, you know, undergunned and undermanned against you, you set it up to where it's very hard to win. It's very hard to win in the court of public opinion um, because the expectations are that you can wipe them off the face of the earth. And of course you can, but that's not the point of our military. That's not the point of having weapons. The point of having weapons is to never have to use them. And, and you know, the inability to let ISIS pop off without us getting engaged in some new wrinkle in the Middle East and in Iraq is stupid. And we could have let we could have let Iraq, uh, Jordan, Syria, Saudis, others, Turkey, they all could have had, had played a role there, and we would have never put anybody on the ground. And if and if we're worried that somehow that diminishes our power in the world and our prestige and we're always the leader or whatever well if that's what you want if you're willing to fight every battle everywhere to to have that sort of world superpower prestige you're you're foolish and you probably do need conscription because that's the kind of ridiculousness that will cause us to get to a point where enough people aren't volunteering because we're doing too much and it's not it's not justified in their minds and and so the the all-volunteer army has been a wonderful success but if you want to run a stupid enough foreign policy you can undermine it and i'm very afraid that that might be one of the things they do and i think that we have more influence by saying you're not going to a draft ever ever we're not having conscription. That's not how we work. You're not going to go there. You're going to have to convince the American people to pay for any war and to voluntarily serve in that war. And to me, I have not a nano bit of worry that we will ever say, oh, we're not going to fight. We'll just let so you know, we, we don't care about freedom. We'll always fight to defend freedom but we won't fight these types of regime change wars. Uh, and, and the more they come down the path, uh, and the more our, you know, the, the more our State Department and politicians and Pentagon understand they can't go there, the more beneficial effect it'll have on our foreign policy. This is Common Sense with Paul Jacob, that's me. And five days a week, Monday through Friday, fresh commentary, new thoughts on crazy happenings in politics. And then on the weekend, you get to actually see me in the flesh with a video on Saturday and listen to me roar on Sunday with the podcast, which you can get at soundcloud.com.